you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. On to John chapter 21. We're in the last two sermons in the Gospel of John this week and then next week. And so we're still dealing with the resurrection. And Jesus' appearance after the resurrection. Isn't it funny how Easter doesn't just stop with Easter? It, it carries on, of course. And I love what we see here in John. I saw a rather kind of funny video. Uh, it was actually yesterday. I don't have uh, social media or anything like that, so I, ha- I don't get any news feeds on anything. But I decided to go, hey. What's the Babylon Bee up to? And uh, I decided to look at some videos, and I found this hysterical video, as always. I love satire. On how you might know you're a man. And they gave like 12 to 15 reasons on how you might know you're a man. And one of the reasons, I'll only share, one of the reasons that you might know you're a man is if you stand around an open hood of a car, pointing at everything, but have absolutely no idea what you're doing or even talking about or even how to fix anything under the hood. You might be a man. And I thought, that is so true because there has been so many times where I've opened the hood of a car, several of us stood around, and all of us knew absolutely nothing. (laughs) Men generally want to know how to do it all or pretend like we know how to do it all even though we may have little knowledge or experience. You know, the classic one is, yeah, we know where we're going, and we don't know where we're going. We won't ask directions or nothing. Like, we're just going to do this. And chances are, there's probably men in this room right now who are hunkering down, realizing that this is true of themselves, and they, they may have been found out that they are not actually experts at the things they claim to be experts at. But one of the greatest reliefs for me is knowing a mechanic and knowing my dad. If I'd have paid attention to my dad as a kid, I'd know how to work on cars, but I was so bored so fast that I never paid attention. But both of those men in particular take the burden of whatever weighs on me and the issues of my car and takes the difficulties of it and makes it a light matter for me. If we remember in the Gospel of Matthew, in the 11th chapter, verses 25 through 30, it says this, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Like oxen would be yoked up together to pull the plow, if you will. So we are yoked up with Jesus. And in so doing, the burden is light. The reality for the disciples is that they are still void of 
the Holy Spirit, the mechanic of their soul, the Spirit of Jesus. The service, however, of Jesus is not over just because he died and he resurrected. He's still active. He's still doing something. The disciples, what they need is this forever ongoing help of Jesus. And that is exactly what we'll see today. The resurrection of Jesus reveals to us the continued service of Jesus for his disciples. The resurrection of Jesus reveals to us the continued service of Jesus for his disciples. So we ask ourselves, what is, what is Jesus teaching us in John about why he still needs to serve his disciples even though he's resurrected? What is it that he still needs to teach us? Or why is it he still needs to serve us? A few lessons. The first lesson here. That Jesus continues to serve us Continues to serve because the disciples are still affected by the daunting of the night. Jesus continues to serve because the disciples are still affected by the daunting of the night. John, the gospel writer, continues to use that imagery of night. And we see that here in this story. Read with me again verses 1 through 3 or follow along. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples By the Sea of Tiberias. That is the Sea of Galilee. Where they're at on the Sea of Galilee is by Tiberias, the town. So disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat But that night, they caught nothing. Again, the daunting of the night. While John's gospel does not record what I'm about to say, Matthew chapter 28 verse 10 tells us that after Jesus had resurrected, he had spoken to Mary and the women shortly after, telling them, hey, go to my disciples and tell them to head to Galilee, and there I will show myself to them. If we remember, if you look at the maps in the back portion of your Bible, Jerusalem is to the south, Galilee is to the north. They are a long ways from the Sea of Galilee, from where Jesus had died. And so if you take the Gospel of John and put it side by side the other Gospels, you wonder really what came first. Did Jesus appearing to them in this locked room come first? Or did, he, did they have to go to Galilee and then, then Jesus reveal himself there? John, as we've mentioned in sermons past, is not concerned so much with chronology, the order of events as they happened in the ministry of Jesus, but more of conveying a message. And he tells us that explicitly in the 20th chapter. The reason he is writing these things is so that we would know Jesus and that we would have life in his name. That's the focus of John's writing. However, At the same time, John is not contradicting anything that you would see in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Because all of them specifically record that the disciples do go to Galilee and Jesus does reveal himself to them. Luke more directly shows that after Jesus shows himself to the disciples in Galilee, that the disciples then return back to Jerusalem. And that's where then the book of Acts kicks off. 
And we then have the fall of the Holy Spirit. So the disciples, we can assume, they head to Galilee. They head up north. They head to the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias here in obedience to Jesus. So they are obeying Jesus. But what we will see or what we still see is a struggle with the famish of the night. It's still daunting. This kind of made me have this flashback memory of what we saw when Jesus first called the disciples. John's gospel doesn't record this, but it does in Luke chapter 5. If you wanted to read it on your own. It's the scene of Jesus calling his disciples as they were out fishing. He called the disciples to follow him. They weren't catching any fish at all. And so he told them to cast their nets out. And they cast their nets out and they were trying to pull it in. And the nets were so full that they were tearing. And in fact, they had to have a second boat come and help them load all the fish at that point. The disciples literally follow Jesus. And so the lesson from Jesus is don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When Jesus came to the disciples and called the disciples, he called them on the Sea of Galilee to follow him, that he would make them fishers of men. And it's very likely we still see or we're reminded intentionally of that picture here, even in the resurrection. It is Jesus who is the one who will make them fishers of men. Because remember already in John chapter 20, he instructs them that they will go out and they will bear witness. Talking about the forgiveness of God. But the other lesson we know is that the disciples, no matter their obedience to Jesus, even going to Galilee, they cannot do anything apart from the power and the authority of Christ. They're still struggling with the daunting of the night. And isn't that the critical part of conversion, of being born again, of being saved? That the Spirit must regenerate a man's heart. The disciples, yes, they see, they know Christ, but yet their heart still has not been fully changed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Many in our city, we think about Springfield, Many in our city claim to be Christian. We're Christian on every corner, on every block. And none of us are so naive to think that everybody who claims to be a Christian is actually a Christian. But have you noticed how some of those who claim to be Christian, they still seem to be walking in the night? It's really hard. You hear their words. You hear them saying that they're obeying Jesus, but there's just something that is missing. There's no fruit. They seem to be walking in darkness. So then it's very possible that even in this room, there are some who are doing what Jesus wants them to do. Obeying the commands. Just like the disciples heading to Galilee, as they were told. But what you're doing is you're operating apart from the help, the power, and the authority of Jesus. You're doing what he says. It looks right, but you're doing it in your own power. All you find of your labors is the daunting of the night over 
and over. It is nothing but a fruitless endeavor. For those of you who might be in the hearing of my voice and understand those who live in the power and under the authority of Jesus, you must not be afraid to help those who claim to follow Jesus, obey Jesus, and yet His power is absent in their lives. Ask the question, by what power and under what authority are you living your life? I don't think that's a wrong question to ask folks in our culture, especially this Christian culture that we have. By what power and under what authority are you living your life? It'll be revealing. Think of the people that you know and who might fit this definition of one who obeys Jesus but yet is still operating in the night. Now consider asking them that question, but as a servant. As a servant. Remember, and we have it even on the, on the hallway here, that a disciple of Jesus is a follower, a missionary, a worshiper, a follower, a servant, and a missionary. Someone who serves. Jesus comes to the scene to serve the disciples because he has compassion and love for them. And so what I'm asking you to do is not simply an intellectual exercise to test their knowledge, but I'm asking you to serve them in the spirit and the power of Christ to engage them as one who is inviting and calling them out of the daunting labors of darkness, a worthless religion, and into the life-giving obedience to Jesus and to do so with compassion. That's what I'm asking. And here's a question to truly examine your heart this morning. If you were a disciple in this boat, in this scene, finding yourself in Galilee as Jesus commanded, are you one who is waiting and longing for Jesus to show up as he told them he would? Or are you just caught up in the groaning and grumbling and the toils of your labor? What would you be? And so Jesus continues to serve because the disciples are still affected by the daunting of the night. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't leave them. He loves them and he serves them. It's necessary for them to know that they don't have the power in their own. And so then he comes, he continues to serve. The second thing, he continues to serve because it is in him that the disciples will find his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He continues to serve because it is in him the disciples will find his yoke is easy. Yoke meaning his teachings are easy and his burden, that is the work and the labor of obeying him, is a light work. Verses 4 through 8. Just as day was breaking. You see the, the language shifting from the night to the day. Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Of course they didn't. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. 
the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And so here we are at the break of dawn. The sun is rising. The scene is turning to light. And there is Jesus appearing like any other man on the shore, wanting to help the fishermen out on the sea who clearly are not catching anything. And you kind of wonder if it's out of exhaustion or annoyance that they listen to him. Or maybe they're actually hearing him and believe, okay, well, maybe he's right. We toss the net over here. But it's just probably, okay, let's just toss it over the right side and see what happens. And it is when the net fills up, when the miracle happens, that the eyes of John is open and he tells Peter, it is the Lord. It is God. As Thomas had declared in the last chapter, my Lord and my God. And it's a little bit funny. It makes you ask a lot of uh, follow-up questions when you're reading this story. When you go swimming, usually you go from, say, this down to a bathing suit. But for Peter, he seems to go from nothing to being fully clothed to jumping into the sea here. And so chances are he may have been down to a skibbies or less than while he was fishing. Awkward night. Nobody, like, okay, sorry. Just seems funny. But he jumps in. He jumps in with all of his clothes. And he swims back to Jesus. And not to over-spiritualize this, right? Not to overthink it. But there is some significance. And some of the significance is that Peter sees Jesus. And he wants to get all of his stuff together. He wants to go to him and be presented before him, not naked and shameful, but dressed up. And it seems logical to think such a thing. But if we look at what we'll dive into even next week, in connection to what Jesus will tell Peter, Jesus tells Peter, eventually, that he will not be able to dress himself when he gets older. In fact, somebody else will dress him. Somebody else will take him where he doesn't want to go. And he is speaking of the death that Peter will endure. Peter's currently in control of this of his life, but soon it'll be overtaken by the work of the Holy Spirit as we get into Acts chapter 2. And you hear that beautiful sermon Peter preaches almost immediately after. You don't see that here in this moment. He's still without the permanent indwelling Holy Spirit. But his life will radically change when the Helper comes And he will then go from where he is, dead in his sins, to alive in Christ. But even as he lives alive in Christ, he will ultimately be put to death. But even as he's being put to death, he will be living. The yoke will be easy for him. The burden will be light, even though it will cost him his life. Why? Because the Spirit of Jesus will be with him. The dawn is breaking. 
The dawn is breaking upon your souls, church. Your burden will be lightened as you listen to Jesus. Jesus reveals to you and me that He is the perfect Adam. Remember the last, uh, in chapter 20, we, we saw this beautiful picture of recreation. How Jesus comes as the new Adam, the perfect Adam, to recreate His people. Jesus again showing Himself as that perfect Adam, that second Adam, that recreator. He comes now with perfect dominion over all things. Perfect dominion. Even the fish calling them into the net. And when Jesus works, the ground that He works for Himself is not a curse. It doesn't cause Him to grow weary. Or to be exhausted by the sweat of his brow like the first Adam. This Jesus works without ever being tired. He is always rested. You and I without Jesus will labor to exhaustion by the sweat of our brow. But here we have before us the perfect Adam who labors freely and with loving service for us. He is serving His disciples. The unregenerated disciples, He's still serving. And this should never surprise us that when Jesus calls us to do something, and we do it, that He will show up and make the labor worth it all. He'll make it worth everything. Look at John and Peter in the story. They're filled with joy. It's like they completely forgot what just happened maybe for the last 12 hours when they were toiling and fishing all night. Now there's an eagerness to get to Jesus. There's no time for complaining, no time for reflecting on all the labor, but time to get to Jesus. And here's the truth that we must note as well. Jesus is okay if you come to Him completely bare. You don't have to get yourself clothed, cleaned up, looking right before he would accept you. And Peter may have been just acting naturally or culturally here. I'm, again, not trying to speak too deep into this. But spiritually speaking, Jesus is looking for you to just run to him, even if you're stripped down from the hard toils of life. And looking ahead, there may be days ahead of suffering. We know that for sure of Peter. Of God allowing enemies of Christ to overpower you and take control of you. But there will be joy in that time. Because the same Jesus who serves Peter in the boat with fish will be the same Jesus who serves Peter as he suffers for the sake of the gospel. So it will be with you and me. Your joy is made complete in the service of Christ Nothing else, even if it means suffering. And for those who are laboring and laboring, come to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Receive the bounty of grace and mercy that He provides and run hard to Him with all that you have. He will gladly receive you. And He will make the burden and heaviness of the daunting night become the light of the dawning sun. 
It is in the Son that you would receive plenty. And the third reason Jesus continues to serve is because He wants the disciples to be nourished in the warming of the Son. That is Himself. S-O-N. Jesus continues to serve because He wants the disciples to be nourished in the warming of the Son. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So now I want to give you 153 reasons why Jesus serves us. Just kidding. Isn't there a bit of irony here? Jesus says, hey, bring me the fish that you caught. They didn't catch the fish. I mean, I guess they threw the net out and the fish were caught in it, but it was Jesus. He was the one who filled their nets, but he did it through them. Jesus shows again that authority, that dominion that he has as Lord and how he provides and that he, Jesus is the joy of life-giving labor and work. He is the one who will make these disciples fishers of men while providing. The net was not torn, unlike what we saw in the story prior in, um, in the Gospel of Luke, where the net was tearing. Here the net was not tearing. And here we also have a specific number of fish that is counted. And it is debated as to why these fish were counted. And no one actually knows. So I'm not even going to attempt as to explain why. But what we do know is there's a large number of fish that is being caught. The, the net is not tearing apart. It is heavy. And they end up hauling it in. And as I mentioned before, there's a picture of Jesus showing His disciples that He will make Him fishers of men who need the power and the authority of Jesus to be on mission. But there's also some other imagery here that I would gather from the Lord's Prayer. Here I would say, and this is my personal opinion, is a visual representation of what we might see in the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, 9-13, through 13, we read the Lord's Prayer. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts or our sins as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Jesus here, I would say, is the visual representation of the Lord's prayer. We have the provision of bread. We have the provision of fish. Jesus has the fire going. It's this 
really kind of quaint, warm setting where they come onto the shore at the beginning of the day. There's still dew on the ground. And Jesus has this nice little charcoal fire going. And he's cooking food, essentially, before they arrive. What an inviting place that Jesus has set up. But he wants their labor to be light. He wants their yoke to be easy. He invites them to feast on the work that he has done through them because it is satisfying. There's the provision of bread. All that labor, not in vain, the Lord provides. But you see even, I would say, from the Lord's prayer, exampled in this imagery here, is the provision of forgiveness. Yeah, you have the physical provision of food, but the physical, I would say, even the manifested presence of forgiveness between God and man. Jesus told the disciples in chapter 20, verse 23, that they were going to go out and they were going to bear witness to the forgiveness of God. They're going to proclaim this message and to some forgiveness will be extended and to others forgiveness would not be. But here they are experiencing the forgiveness of God, as you would see in the Lord's prayer. Jesus has forgiven them their sins. He sits with them in the warmth of the morning sun. The disciples will not be able to just tell the world the truth about God's forgiveness But now they will be able to uh, forgive others just as God has forgiven them with Jesus as the perfect example. This burden, this burden of forgiving others who've sinned against you, apart from Jesus, will be impossible. But because of Jesus... It will be less daunting than spending 12 hours on the sea trying to catch fish and coming up with nothing. And so here they are. This visual representation of the Lord's provision, of the Lord's kindness, of the Lord's forgiveness extended towards them. And no one dared to ask Him this time. No one was questioning, is this the Lord? Now, there's debate into the language of this as to whether or not they actually wanted to ask the question, but they just refrained from doing it. But I'm just going with the simple understanding here that they saw this this was the Lord and they dared not ask Him. And so we know that from this point on, they are no longer asking qualifiers. Are you Jesus? How often do we rely on the Lord's provision and maybe not our own? Or another way to put it, how often we rely on our own provision and not the Lord. How often do we forget Jesus is gentle? He's compassionate. He's an inviting God. Yes, He has supreme power, authority, dominion over all things. But we often and so easily and so quickly forget that He is kind towards us sinners. He's forgiving. He brings us into the fire, invites us to breakfast. Some of us just need to accept the invitation and eat with Him and enjoy Him. How many times does Pastor Brandon have to ask us to recite the first question of the catechism? The chief in demand is to... 
Glorify God and what? Enjoy Him forever. We struggle to enjoy Him because we're too busy doing for Him. Enjoy Him. If I'm honest, there's a bit of anxiety among us in our labors. Maybe it's a Midwest culture thing. We worry so much about so many things. How will ends be met? And sometimes it's a real issue. How will the future be? What's going to happen? What will happen if fill in the blank? We are a people that are constantly weighing the worst case scenario of everything. And rarely do we just sit back and bask in the goodness of God and enjoy Him. We need to stop seeking qualifiers and just believe. Jesus serves you, church. He serves you. He wants you to not rely on the labor of your hands. He's not calling you to be lazy and not to work, but He's saying, stop thinking that you're the provider, that it's your kingdom, that it's your authority, that it's your dominion, that it's your power. It's not. It's mine. So live like it. Work and labor and stop worrying and being anxious. Enjoy me for crying out loud. Enjoy me for once. Stop falling victim in fear to the things of the world. They constantly are swaying your emotions and your thoughts and your opinions. They're making you angry. They're causing you to be disgruntled, divided. There's discord among you. Enjoy me. We need to enjoy Him. Your obedience to Him does not mean you force the outcome. The disciples were obeying. They couldn't control one stinking fish into the net. But at the end of it, the Lord provided. And that's all that matters. Simply obey Him and trust Him. Serve Him and He will serve you and make provision. That's why He told you to pray the Lord's Prayer. And when he provides, because he will, he will not go back on his word. In that moment, when he actually provides, remember what he has said. And maybe for the first time in a week or a month or this year or the last five years, bask in the forgiveness of God. Enjoy him. Forget about the chaos of the world for a moment. It is not God. Jesus is God. And remember this. Only a forgiving, gracious, loving, merciful God is so kind to His children. Accept the kindness of the Lord. Then turn and share that kindness and forgiveness with the world around you. And I'm talking about from your family out, from your home out. Share that. Everyone needs to know the forgiving love of Christ. And how will they know it? Not just intellectually from your mouth, but from the very life that you also live. 
Allow those around you to see that you sit peaceably at the table of the Lord. That you sit peaceably around His campfire, eating breakfast with Him, enjoying Him, basking in the reality that He is Lord and provider, and that with Him you are being warmed in the rising of the sun. Don't spend your days and hours pretending that you can fix something, that you have the power to do something, that by slapping Jesus on the things that you're doing, that somehow you can make it happen. You can't apart from Him. You can't apart from the Spirit. Don't spend the rest of your time In days, laboring, working so hard apart from the authority of Jesus. It will be daunting. It will be miserable. You will be angry. You will grow hostile. You will grow embittered towards God, towards the church, towards everybody. And the only option for you is to run away to the mountains where nobody exists. And to hide away forever. Instead, come in To Jesus. Come into his arms. Rest in him as the perfect Adam that you and I could never be. Come out of the daunting of the night and enter into the gentle service of the king. Where his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And where you will be warmed by the flame of the eternal sun. Jesus serves you. Because He loves you. He forgives you. He paid the ransom for you. So stop looking under the hood like you know what you're doing. Because you don't. And accept the invitation and provision of the mechanic of your soul. King Jesus.